Welcome to the Social Flight Live podcast, an audio version of our live show, hosted every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have a wonderful show for you this evening. NASA astronaut and the first mother to fly in space, Anna Lee Fisher, is here this evening. And uh, she has such a wonderful story. I cannot wait for you to all meet her. Now, before we get started, just a few things. First of all, Social Flight's Fly to Win Challenge is just racing through to the next prize that we have coming up. We're giving away a Lightspeed Delta Zulu headset on February 1st. You still have time to win that amazing headset. All you need to do is go to get the Social Flight mobile app for Apple and Android devices. It's completely free. Check in at your local airport and you're entered to win. And then if you continue to check in at other airports as you get out there and fly, then you get more points. You can be on our leaderboard and get additional entries into that drawing. We are here to support you and general aviation and get people out there and flying to get to all the different events happening around the country and also virtual events as we have tonight with Social Flight Live. In addition, we have our partnership with the FAA and Social Flight's FAA Learning Center that's available on socialflight.com and also on the mobile apps with all sorts of WINGS courses and aviation maintenance technician courses for that awards program. And if you're an AMP with an inspection authorization, you can get your eight hours of education for free through us directly through socialflight.com. Just go to Social Flight, check out the FAA credits tab in the menu and then you can get uh, credit. It all has to be done through the website there. Tonight's broadcast is brought to us by Continental Aerospace Technologies, been a strong supporter of Social Flight for so many years. We are grateful to them. They also make the engine that's uh, in our Bonanza that we fly behind, that great IO550 engine. We got cylinders from them that are just absolutely bulletproof and doing fantastic. And also, they, you know, we've, if you watch any of our videos from uh, Sun and Fun or Oshkosh and AirVenture, things like that, then you've seen that we've also visited with their uh, Avgas, not just their Avgas, but their Jet A engines for Technum and other aircraft. Um, they just have so many great things. And they also offer an Avgas and Jet A Aviation Technician Advanced Training Program that's available uh, on site. And I believe they may have some remote as well. Check it out with them. It's a great program where uh, your mechanic, or if you're a mechanic yourself, can learn really about how to maintain these engines at a, at a completely different level. So um, thanks to Continental so much for that. Now, on to tonight's guest. Dr. Anna Lee Fisher joined the ranks of NASA's astronauts in November 1984 on the Space Shuttle Discovery. As part of the famously diverse NASA Class 8, chronicled in Meredith Bagby's fascinating book, the New Guys, which I, I absolutely love. It's a fantastic book, The New Guys. Dr. Fisher became one of the first women and the first mother to fly in space. Her mission itself was pivotal. It marked the first time that NASA captured malfunctioning satellites from orbit and returned them back to Earth for repair. 
The mission had many challenges that required ingenuity from the crew as well as folks on the ground at mission control in order to achieve their goals. Following her flight on Discovery, Dr. Fisher served as chief of the space station branch from 1996 to 2002 and International Space Station Capsule Communicator or CAPCOM from 2011 to 2013. I am absolutely thrilled to have her with us here tonight. Please welcome to Social Flight Live, Dr. Anna Lee Fisher. I, I'm very happy to be here with you tonight, Jeff, and with your audience. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm thrilled. Um, uh, we both uh, are obviously are very familiar with the book, The New Guys, and um, this really tells a very wonderful story of each of the people that made up that um, that group. And tell me a little bit about your background and what first drew you towards medicine, and then from medicine making the leap into being NASA and into being an astronaut, which seems to be a fairly common path with that group. Well, I wanted to be an astronaut since I was 12 years old when I listened to Alan Shepard um, as he was talking to Mission Control. And although it didn't seem like a very likely goal to have that moment, that that's what I wanted to do someday if I ever had the opportunity. Um, but as I um, as I pursued my education, I was the first person in my family to go to college and was very fortunate to get into UCLA. And as I was pursuing my career, um, my education uh, in chemistry and then later in medicine, it didn't seem like it was going to be very likely that I was going to be an astronaut. So medicine seemed like... Um, a, a, a good path to follow and I thought well if I don't get to be an astronaut maybe someday I'll get to be a doctor on a space station someday so I hadn't totally lost um, uh, sight of the dream that I'd had since I was younger but it, it certainly didn't seem likely when you know all of a sudden I found out just by chance that NASA was looking for not only pilots but mission specialists. So now I'm, I'm interested you went into emergency medicine and to me there's a bit of a story that must be in that because that that seems to be a very uh, a field for someone who's fairly driven uh be yeah i mean uh, medicine all, all already is but um that uh, there's got to be some kind of connection between that and what it took to, to be an astronaut you know, I was attracted to emergency medicine for many reasons. One, it's an exciting field to be in. You, you're dealing with people in all, you know, from, from common colds to ear infections to gunshot wounds and freeway trauma. Um, it just, it, I just, it just appealed to the part of me that loves that excitement, but also helping people. And I will say that the training um, that I received uh, in medicine was was almost always more difficult than astronaut training because at least um, the astronauts, uh, NASA believed they needed sleep <laughs> to do a very demanding job. And certainly in medical training and when you're working in emergency rooms, the, the groups I worked with were 24-hour shifts. And so it, in a way, it was like the best training possible to have to be an astronaut because everything else looked easier in comparison. <laughs> so tell me about your path. How did you 
how did this how did you come across the uh, when when NASA opened things up and decided to make a change for for class eight and and how did they find you basically yeah, I was just in the I was just towards the end of my internship at um, one of the uh, UCLA affiliated uh, hospitals actually the hospital where they brought Tiger Woods when a few years ago when he was involved in the car accident great hospital for trauma and so I was in the uh, finishing end of my um, internship year when one of my medical school friends um, who was another space uh, buff and received the NASA newsletters that he uh, subscribed to and uh, in a conversation with my uh, then fiance and, and later husband who was about a year ahead of us in medical training um, he had said, hey, you know, you and Anna have always been interested in NASA is looking for not only pilots, but mission specialists. And it was like a month before the deadline, just a purely chance conversation at lunch. And I still remember Bill paging me and saying, we have one month because we both wanted to, we, we both loved space and I'd always wanted to be astronauts. I mean, we didn't even talk it over. It was just obvious that we would both apply. And um, back then, it took about a month to get everything together because you had to do everything with snail mail and, you know, transcripts, letters of recommendations. And I got my application in a day before the deadline. And, um, and then six weeks later, was in uh, Houston interviewing for the job I had always dreamed about. So it... It all came just kind of out of the blue, um, and um, I had, but I had no doubts that that was what I'd always wanted to do. So it didn't really require a lot of thought to decide to apply. And did I did I understand correctly that um, that when you did this, this you basically had to turn down your residency in surgery? Yeah, I, you know, at the point, you know, at Prior to, to that, probably a couple weeks before, um, I was considering where I was headed in medicine, and I loved emergency medicine, loved surgery, and had decided I wanted to go ahead and go into surgery. And I'd had a, 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 a talk with the chairman of the department, and he said that, um, I mean, he looked me in the face and said women didn't belong in medicine because they wouldn't stay, in, particularly in surgery. And, um, uh, but I was shocked when they actually accepted me in the program. And that was where I was headed when all of a sudden the NASA thing came along. So it was a, uh, it, it was a incredibly difficult decision, something to give up that was back in those days, it was incredibly hard for women to be accepted in medicine at all, much less to go into surgery. And so it's, um, it was a very scary thing to turn it down for something that I didn't know even at that point that I was going to be accepted. I just felt like it wasn't right to take a spot away from a resident. Uh, and then there was a chance that I would leave. So uh, Bill and I decided we would take that year to practice medicine, work emergency medicine, and then see what happened and then regroup if we were not accepted. So. It was a very scary decision to turn that down. That's 
that's a big, big decision because you had nothing other than sending an application in at that time and no idea out of out of the thousands of people whether you were going to get selected. T tell me about the path and what it was like when you kind of got the news. Well, it was, you know, I, I mean, I felt like I was doing the right thing by not taking a spot away from somebody else and then potentially leaving. Um, but yeah, the chair of the department was not really happy with that decision, which really surprised me um, because I thought he would understand that. But uh, so I'm, I'm really glad it worked out the way it did because it could have been a very difficult decision about where I was going to go after that if I hadn't been accepted at NASA. So um, I'm, I'm glad things worked out the way the way they did. Um, t tell me about so tell me about getting getting through the selection process and then uh, what it was like kind of meeting the the, the characters out there and go, going through that final process. You know the process um, today is, is very similar to what we went through. There's a few little things added, but it's a still a very similar process. Um, you're invited there for a week long interview process. Um, we, um, I was in uh, the second group that was interviewed for the for our class. It was the first class of mission specialists and the first the first group of women that were interviewed ever. And it's really interesting because of the six women selected, three of us were in that first interview group. Ray and I uh, were all selected, and then Judy and Kathy and Sally were kind of. Uh, spread out among the uh, the later groups that were interviewed, um, but it's a week-long interview process. Um, you get a lot of physical exams, interviews with psychiatrists, uh, lots of medical um, exams, and then the most important thing being the interview with the astronaut selection committee, which is a committee of Oh, 10 to 12 people includes astronauts, the chief of the astronaut office, the director of, at that time it was flight operations director, it later became flight crew operations director, now it's back to flight operations director, but it's a, and, and then it includes um, other astronauts and other people in management positions uh, throughout the Johnson Space Center. and. Um, you, once you've made it through the medical tests and everything else, uh, you know you really realize that that is the the determining factor. And I had the chance to observe it both, you know, as an interviewee, and then also I was on the selection board for the '87 class, so I had the opportunity to see it from both sides of the equation. That 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 makes sense. Um... I mean, the the what they're obviously tell me a little bit. I got some of the characters involved because obviously that must have been a very exciting process with George Abbey, um, who kind of ran things. And when did you, I guess, start to form that bond with what became your your real classmates? Well, with the classmates, that didn't happen until later. But but in the interview process. Um, you know, you really do form a bonds with the, there's always 20 people in every interview group. And so, you know, we, we all had the same passion and dreams of, of going into space. Different people 
you know, had it at different times. Some people um, didn't have that dream for a child. Others did. Uh, some that never really occurred to them because the career astronaut at the time we were selected was still a relatively new thing. And for them, it was males and predominantly test pilots. So um, there really wasn't that much of a defined career pathway for people who were in a scientific field. So um, so we formed that bond, but um, the real bonds in our class, I think, started to form when, you know, when our selection was announced and, and we were brought to the space agency. And in fact, um, today or yesterday, I guess, was the anniversary uh, of uh, January 15th was when we were presented uh, introduced at the Johnson Space Center. And and how how did you feel about being part of what even at the time was a pretty unique group? As you mentioned, it's very different from kind of the the right stuff test pilots, very very straightforward group. To um, I mean, tell me a little bit about the the group and or some that you made closer friends with, perhaps or anything. Well, I mean, I was just happy to be a part of it. <laughs> I mean, it was just. It was just amazing. You know, I came um, from a military background. My father was in the army, and um, you know, we grew up living all over the place. So, coming into this organization that you know wasn't a military, but it, I would say a quasi-military organization, it, it felt very comfortable to me. And um, and getting to be a part of this amazing group, well, I just. You know, sometimes I just had to pinch myself. It was almost like surreal to um, to to be to, to find out that that I was actually chosen to be in this group. It it um, you know to have something that you dreamed about and then had pretty much given up that that was going to happen in your lifetime and or at least your career lifetime, and then to suddenly have things change so quickly. Um, you know, from the time applied in June 30th of 1977 to when the selection was announced um, six months later, that's a relatively short time to have your entire life change um, um, so dramatically. Um, but uh, I was just incredibly grateful because that was what I always knew I wanted to do. There seem to be some things that uh, that are part of your story that uh, in astronaut training that that were just perfect fits for you. The, in the book, we talk they talk about like getting in the personal rescue enclosure, which can you know be claustrophobic for people and really difficult for for people. There's your specialty of working with the cannon arm, uh, things like that. You seem to take very well to some of those specific tasks. What what were your you know what would, what do you think? Uh, the you know being in the um, the the personal rescue sphere that was really that was part of our selection process, and we really weren't told a lot, um, and they just said um, you know you're going to get inside this sphere and it's pressurized. The idea for these spheres was that they would be used if a shuttle was disabled and you had to transfer crew members from one shuttle to another shuttle. 
you know, hypothetically. And so they had that, they didn't have enough spacesuits to put everybody into a spacesuit. So you would have two people in spacesuits and everybody else would be put in one of these spheres and transferred one shuttle to the next. So as part of the selection process, they just towed us to get inside one of these spheres and they really didn't tell us what was going to happen, how long you were going to be there. But, you know, you got inside this little pressurized, you know, bigger than a basketball, you know, big ball, big enough to hold a person, but, um, but really not that big. And, you know, I had just come off of working several uh, shifts in the emergency room and I was exhausted. I just went to sleep. <laughs> and, and so in talking with many of my friends that got selected, I think that was kind of what happened. Most people who got selected just got into the sphere and fell asleep. And then eventually, I don't even really remember how long I was in it. It just felt really good to get a chance to just get some rest after the, the busy weeks that I'd had prior to that. So that was something that um, I guess was uh, was a test that um, worked. Being um, coming from a background where you were sleep deprived was probably helpful. <laughs> and yeah, I mean that it, it, you know half the people are dealing with claustrophobia, and the, I guess the other half are looking at this as a vacation. Yeah, it would, uh, you know, like I said, I I barely remember getting inside and going to sleep. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Um, what about the the arm? So the, you know when we we're going to talk in a second about the the, the mission itself, but learning that the yeah. the space shuttle was known, of course, largely for its bay, what it could do, and all of that was orchestrated by this Canada arm. Tell me about the arm, what it was like to learn it. That's a very unique skill that not everyone was good at, and you seem to be pretty good at. The actual, my actual first assignment that I worked on was actually spacesuits. They were trying to get a spacesuit small enough to fit someone my size. And then a later assignment, um, uh, several of the women, uh, Sally and Judy, uh, worked on, uh, on developing the techniques for the robotic arm. And then um, several of us also on verifying the software in the in the shuttle avionics integration lab sale, which is where we verified all the software that's applied on the shuttle, including the robotic arm. So we had a chance to um, all of us to really work, uh, or several of us had a chance to work on the robotic arm uh, in the development phase. So I was really excited. Um, when I was assigned to to, to know that I was going to be the to to be able to operate the robotic arm and real because all the things that we had done on the ground are in simulators and mock-ups and so forth and and so to to know that I was going to actually get to operate the arm uh, on orbit was really exciting. Um, take me through the mission of of you were delivering two satellites and you were bringing two satellites you had satellites back and that was obviously a first time. Well, what was really funny about that being assigned to that flight was um, in February of 1984, uh, the first flight of the manned maneuvering unit was was taking part place, uh, Bruce McCandless, and I was sent to New York to be on the Today Show to provide commentary about the first flight of the manned maneuvering unit. 
It was also the same flight that deployed the two satellites that eventually were going to go rescue. And what happened was that um, the first satellite was deployed just before I left Houston, and it had a, a malfunction of the rocket that was supposed to take it from low Earth orbit where the shuttle deployed it up to geosynchronous orbit. And um, the rocket that was supposed to take it to the higher orbit failed a few seconds into what should have been a several minute burn. And when I got to New York, um, I was talking to the taxi driver taking me to my hotel. And he said he thought that the same thing had just happened to the second satellite. I said, uh, I don't think so. I don't think NASA would deploy the second satellite without understanding what happened to the first. But when I got to my hotel and called back to Houston, sure enough, the taxi driver was right. And so here were these two satellites that were in perfectly good condition, but were totally useless because they were in the wrong orbit. Communication satellite has to be in geosynchronous orbit so that it stays over the point on the Earth where they're providing communication for. So um, when I got on the Today Show, I was thinking, okay, now they're going to ask me questions about that. And I have no idea why NASA decided to deploy that, you know, I know why they deployed the first one, but why they deployed the second one. And I remember saying to Brian Gumbel at the time, who was interviewing me, he asked, will NASA go get these satellites, try to retrieve these satellites? And I said, no way. You know, <laughs> these satellites weren't designed to be retrieved. The robotic arm cannot just go grab anything. Whatever it's going to grab has to have a special grapple fixture that's designed to operate with the arm. So I remember saying, I, I can't, no, I don't think NASA will do that because they weren't designed to be retrieved best sport I ever ate in my life. You know, so a few years, uh, a few months later, um, as we were assigned to our crew and things started to develop, it became apparent that um, if we were going to do the retrieval mission, and there were a lot of people who were not supportive because it was relatively early in the shuttle program at that point, and um, I think many people thought it was a risky mission, not so much risky in terms of um, a catastrophic risk, but risk of failure. And um, and so it was really the insurance underwriters who were the big driver, Lloyds of London and their subsidiaries, who were the big drivers for the retrieval mission. And I don't think the final paperwork that agreed, you know, to, to launch this mission was signed until we flew in November. I don't think the paperwork was finally settled really till like September. So it was a really intense period because not only, so the, the satellites were, were lost or put in the wrong orbit in February, our flight was in November. That's a very short period of time to develop all the hardware, the training, the procedures and, everything. That's a very short period of time. And so um, it, it, it was so much fun. I don't think I'll ever have that much fun again in my life, you know, being a part of something where everybody was working towards a common goal, both to save those two satellites, but more importantly, to demonstrate what the shuttle was capable of and what crews were capable of doing. 
um, that people had not really uh, anticipated we could do. And um, I, I don't think I could have ever picked a better uh, flight to be on with a better crew. Our commander, Rick Howe, um, was also eventually the commander of the return to flight mission after the Challenger accident. Um, it, it, it was just one of the most exciting periods of my life, including the, all the work we did prior to the flight and then the actual flight itself. Yeah, so th tell me about that flight because that didn't go, uh, you know, perfectly to plan, e even with all the challenges that that you faced, and a lot, and you guys had to figure a lot of things out along the way. Well, uh, we we deployed two satellites. Those went flawlessly, and their engines that took them to higher orbit worked well. Um, and that was on days two and three. And then day four was the day that we were getting really ready for the two difficult days, days five and seven, when we were going to try to rescue the Palapa and the West Star satellites. Um, they're Hughes 376 satellites. And so um, the problem with the retrieval mission was, as I mentioned, the arm cannot grapple anything so you have to figure out a way to get a grapple fixture on the satellite and so actually um, my crewmate Dale Gardner came up with the idea of how we could do that and the idea was to get into their spacesuits their EMUs don the man maneuvering unit and then they had a device that would attach to the arms of the man maneuvering unit which we nicknamed the Stinger. It was a device that was going to dock with the nozzle end of the satellite and on one side, <coughs> the, the right side I believe, it had a, um, a grapple fixture so that I could, so they could maneuver the satellite and get it in position and then I could grab the satellite with the arm. And so that all worked flawlessly. Excuse me a second. Um, that worked flawlessly. But then the issue was, if I can try to simplify this, um, you have the satellite that has this um, piece of hardware that has docked into the nozzle end of the satellite. Well, that is also the end of the satellite that has the structural elements that you need to um, put it, berth it into the payload bay so that you could safely bring it back to Earth. So there had to be a way to um, release from where you were grappled. And we had to put another piece of hardware across the top of the satellite so I could release and then grab the top and hold it while they took that other piece of hardware out of the nozzle and then attached the hardware that would attach it securely into the payload bay. So the problem we encountered was that the piece of hardware that was supposed to go over the top of the satellite uh, didn't have an interference. There was a piece of metal interfered with how it attached. And because the satellites were already in orbit, we weren't able to do fit checks on the ground. And although all the Hughes 376 satellites are similar, there are differences. And somehow 
this piece of metal um, when they were designing the piece of hardware to go over the top was not um, realized in the drawings or something. I'm not sure where the problem arose, but the end result was that the piece of hardware that was supposed to put on the top with a grapple fixture so I could hold it didn't fit. So at the time, um, we only had one TDRA satellite. And so we only we didn't have the continuous communication with mission control that we had on later flights after we had two TDRA satellites. So at the time this came up, um, we were um, uh, out of communication with mission control. So we quickly talked over the situation among ourselves. And um, we had that was a problem that we had worried about. And so in our minds, we had a backup plan where we would hold the satellite manually by hand. But no one had ever held something as big as this satellite, as massive. And, um, and there really were no procedures or training or anything else um, to guide us. But we thought we could do that. And we had talked it over with our flight director um, prior uh, prior to launching. But of course, it didn't seem like it was a likely possibility. It was a, kind of a remote possibility. But we talked it over. We realized that there was no way to make that piece of metal fit. And so um, we decided to switch to that backup plan. So when we came back in contact with the ground, we explained the situation quickly as we could. Realize the clock is ticking. The guys are in their suit. They only had six to six and a half hours or so. And so we talked to the ground. We explained the situation. And we said we wanted to do our backup plan, which not too many people in mission control other than the flight director and probably some of the EVA folks were aware of what we were thinking. It took them five minutes, approximately five minutes, to say, okay, go ahead. And to this day, I'm always amazed when I think about that because on later missions after Challenger and Columbia, <laughs> they probably would have said, come on back inside and we'll figure this out. And, but no, they, they said, go ahead, our flight director, Milt Heflin, and, um, and sure enough, uh, Joe was able to hold the satellite manually. We were able to go ahead and complete uh, and then get the first satellite secure in the payload bay. In the day between those two EVAs, we had a long discussion with the ground with whether we should go back to the original plan that we had all trained for or since we had just successfully demonstrated that we could do it this way, we we finally decided to do it the way we had just demonstrated. So uh, we did a slightly modified version, but basically the same thing on the second EVA. And and then at the end of day seven, two satellites were in the payload bay. And I cannot tell you what an amazing feeling that was. This is a really fun, cute picture of all of you, two up, two down having successfully completed it. Do you remember the moment of doing this? Oh, I remember the moment, you know, like when they first came back after we finished 
the second spacewalk um, BBA, it was the most, I mean, you, you could not have seen more excited, you know, uh, I, I mean, we almost, I, don't, I think we almost can believe it ourselves, you know, it was, um, we definitely wished we'd had some champagne to celebrate at that moment, I'm sure. Um, it was, uh, it was really special. And then looking out in the payload bay, you know, and seeing those two satellites there was, uh, it, it was really one of them, you know, if I have to list, you know, the, the peak moments of my life, that was definitely one of them. It's, it's really so amazing. I mean, there are very few things that come back in whole pieces from space, right? I mean, moon rocks and the two satellites that you guys, that, that uh, the two yep. satellites. Well, and the other thing that did that people might not necessarily think about, because I know a lot of your audience are, are aviators, um, is because, you know, the two satellites we were deployed were in the aft portion of the payload bay. And then we deployed them. And then we brought two satellites in and the hardware to secure the two satellites was more in the forward portion of the payload bay. So we actually had the most forward CG of any of the shuttle missions today. And and I, I don't know, I've never looked at all the other flights, perhaps maybe the most forward um, that, that ever flew. Um, and so that was also in, in its own right, just a, a, a difference because it was definitely a way for CG compared to the, the earlier missions. So in, in, in that sense, it was also um, expanding the envelope of, of what the shuttle was capable of. In fact, we had to remove some of our lockers purposefully just to try to do everything we could to move the the CG a little further aft. <laughs> it was weird. We had like several lockers that were just missing um, just to kind of help with that with that situation. That's that's interesting. Who was the the pilot that that did the dead stick landing the 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 way that they land the shuttle on that mission? Rick Rickap, our commander, did the landing. Of, of course, uh, Dave Walker was the pilot. He got to do some flying um, as we did the the, the final approach. Um, but but the landing is always done by the commander. So Rick, Rick did the landing, and he, he did a superb job. I'm going to bring up uh, another uh, a photo here that is really I iconic. Um, this this is pretty classic. Tell me a little bit about this. You know that photo was taken very cool, very close uh, to the when I was first selected as an astronaut. Um, the photographer is Jim John Bryson, who was a, a life photographer. Very well known at the time, you know, I was blissfully ignorant about all those sorts of things. Um, the the uh, interview and the photos were agreed to by NASA, and um, it, it was for, um, they were putting together an article uh, for all the six women that they were going to then put that article out when the first woman was selected to fly. <laughs> and so it was actually done, uh, I don't know, around 1980, I guess, something when Sally was selected, um, they did a, or just prior to that, they did an article on the women. And that was the photograph. He, and there were different photographs, photographers who took pictures of the different 
the, the six of us. And this picture, uh, it was really, a, I still remember, I, I, um, he had everything all set up with his reflectors. And, uh, you know, at the time, I didn't know a lot about photography or anything. And uh, he had arranged to get the helmet. And he just had a vision of what he what he wanted in that photograph. And he just, I, I, I mean, I think it took maybe a half hour at most 45 minutes or something. And then he had me put on the helmet and told me to look here, look there. I, I followed directions pretty easily <laughs> and did what he told me to do. And then, you know, then it was over and I forgot about it. And the article itself didn't come out for, you know, a, a couple of years from when the photograph was taken. And then the article came out and then as is the, as was the case back in those days, uh, the publication, the Life magazine article, um, was printed. That was it. And so I, you know, really forgot all about it. I actually became friends with John Bryson a little bit. He he lived in Malibu, and uh, just before I left to go to NASA, his um, uh, he his house was in danger of being caught in these mudslides, a big storm they had in L.A. and went over to try to help sandbag his house and everything. And so kind of followed him for a couple of years and, and then, you know, got busy at NASA and living life. And, and then all of a sudden this thing called the internet came along and somehow people discovered this picture like 1990s or early 2000s. And I remember um, I got a call from one of my friends who said her son wanted to tell me something. And I said, well, sure, have him give me a call. And he goes, Anna, guess what? You made the front page of Reddit. And I sort of went, uh, <laughs> what's Reddit? <laughs> and, and what's the front, you know, front page in a, you know, uh, in a sense, because it wasn't really a you know, paper, it was, you know, internet. And so somehow that picture just suddenly developed a life of its own, um, separate almost separate from me and I remember I got a text from my younger daughter once and she goes mom guess what you're on the poster for the concert for the Arctic Monkeys in Miami or something and and, uh, and, and it, it just appears like all you know just different places and stuff and one of my sad things is that I think John Bryson passed away before he ever got to see the success of that photo that he took. And, um, you know, it, it, it's really kind of weird to have a photo that's a photo of you, but it's almost like the photo has a life of its own <laughs> that gets used by, um, oh, I had a young high school girl who um, used that photo that she did a painting and she won a artist contest and um, you know, I get friends saying, oh, they went into a restaurant and they take a picture and there's that picture on the wall there. You know, it, it, it's really, it's really funny. <laughs> but um, he, he's truly an amazing photographer who had a vision of what he wanted. And all I did was follow his directions. <laughs> it's very, very iconic. It's very, really symbolic and impressive. That's for sure. Um, yeah. So after you took some time off, you you came back and, and and really finished your career at NASA. Tell me a little bit about what the you know rest of your your kind of life dedication through NASA was. Well, um, you know, I was assigned to my second 
flight um, shortly after I landed. You know, we flew in November, and by December I was uh, had been assigned to my second flight, and we were so close to flight. I think we were like six weeks from flight when um, the Challenger accident happened, and um, launched. You know, a lot of decision making in that time frame, but finally decided to, that we wanted to have our second child. And then I found out that, you know, two children is a lot more work than one. And um, and also decided, you know, I had never taken any time off with Kristen because I was assigned to my flight, um, you know, literally before she was born, about two weeks before she was born. So wound up taking a leave of absence, um, uh, not intentionally, but it wound up being seven years. And then when I came back in 1996, uh, it was like, probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. It was like coming back to a whole new place. Um, most of my classmates had left NASA or uh, the few that left had gone on into other positions with the NASA. And um, it, we, we weren't even in the same building. They had built a new extension. So it was a totally different building, totally new people. All of a sudden, um, we come back and they give you a computer. Uh, you know, before I left to go on my leave of absence, um, in uh, I left in '89, came back in '96. Um, nobody in the office, one person, Steve Holly, the astronomer nerd in our group, had a computer. And when I came back, the first thing they did was give you, you know, issue you your your computer. And I mean, back. Business, we would have view graphs when you were going to discuss issues. You would have meetings. Now there was email. Um, when you gave talks, you had PowerPoint presentations. It was like coming back to a totally different world. But the one advantage um, of my still being there and having been the only person left in the office who remembered what it was like before the shuttle flew as we were getting ready um, uh, you know to fly the shuttle for the first time by the time I came back in '96, the shuttle the training was very mature the procedures were mature everything about the it was you know not every flight time, but it was pretty schedule and so as we were getting ready to start building the space station and now we were not only doing it ourselves, but we were doing it with our international partners, and in particular in the early days, the Russians. It was a totally new thing. And the, all the astronauts in the office at that time were, nobody knew what it was like at the beginning of the shuttle, which, you know, it was not mature. The training wasn't mature. The procedures weren't mature. There was a lot of things we learned that we, made recommendations back that made the program improve to where it was at that point. And so I was, I felt sometimes like I was the lone voice talking uh, to the chief of the office that was uh, Charlie Precourt at that time. So, you know, people are being a little bit unrealistic in their expectations at the, you know, at the early days of a fight. Things are, uh, you know, and, and yeah, we're doing it with international partners. And the Russians, you know, they really think they know a lot about space, too. And so you can't just ignore the, the their um, their feelings and the, their um, 
uh, positions on various issues. So I felt like I really was in the right place at the right time to, to provide leadership and to, um, you know, use the things I learned in the early days of the shuttle program. For example, um, what, what in this wasn't my idea uh, in the early days of the shuttle. Um, I don't know whose idea it was, but we created a group of astronauts, what we call the crew, the Cape Crusaders, that would basically go on Monday morning and spend all week at the Ke at the Kennedy Space Center, basically embedding themselves with all the workers at the Cape, so that whenever an issue arose, they were part of the team and they learned about it from the ground up, not finding out later when it was presented at some high management meeting. And so I remembered that and I thought, well, I think we need to create a group called the Russian Crusaders. At that point, the, the new astronaut class that were just getting their job assignments was the 1996 um, uh, astronaut class, the Sardines, and they were just getting their job assignments. And I picked a couple of them that I knew were really gung-ho hard workers and said, you know, we're going to do the same thing we did with the shuttle in the early days. We're going to pick a group of folks and we want you just to go to Russia. Just work with the engineers there. Learn everything you can. When you hear that there's problems and stuff, you know, bring all that stuff back and 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 become part of the team so that you're, you know, you're with it. And it worked. Into um uh, Mike Fink, Dan Fur Burbank, Peggy Whitson, uh, Sandy Magnus, uh, that group of those those guys that just did an outstanding job of you know becoming friends and partners with the Russians, so that we learned how to work together. And um, and and so uh, in in all I did was carry a concept I learned from the early shuttle days and, and apply it to this new situation. And and it, and it worked, and it um, and and so slowly, uh, you know, it wasn't necessarily pretty for the first expedition one and expedition two, but we slowly learned, and and we did everything. It may not have been always um, the, the the best way, but it but it was safe, and 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 everybody, and and it worked. And you know, years later. Um, after I retired and I uh, was doing some speaking in Moscow for the State Department, um, I had a reunion with a lot of the people that I had worked with and formed these bonds with, you know, all that many uh, years ago. So it, it was really neat because we all felt like, um, I think it was when we, the beginning of how we began to feel like one team. And I think what's so important like Sergei Krikalov was on the Expedition One crew. So I worked a great deal with him, as did many other folks in the program. And so now, when we're in this very difficult situation between the US government and Russia with over the situation in Ukraine, and now Sergei has a very, um, is, is head of the, the, the Russian Space Agency over there. And I think that's the reason why we're still able despite all the politics going on, still Mission Control Houston, Mission Control Moscow are working together. We are launching cosmonauts with SpaceX and we're sending US astronauts over to launch on the Soyuz. You know, and I, and I think it's because of all that hard work we did at the beginning, 
laying that um, the groundwork for our personal relationships. Um, because otherwise, I would have no idea how, how this would, in light of the current political situation with the situation in Ukraine. Wow, I, I, I never actually even thought about it from that perspective, the work that you did and how it translates to how things are today. Th tell me a little bit about your thoughts on where space you know, exploration is now or tourism actually, since you see Virgin Galactic, Blue Origin, SpaceX, in addition to regular NASA operations are bringing more and more people into space. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's great. And I think most, I think most astronauts think it's really great as well. Um, I think the more people that have the opportunity to see our planet from the vantage of space and realize how amazing it is, and then look out into the blackness of space and, you know, perhaps humans one day will I know we'll eventually make it to Mars, but when we will make it out of our solar system to some other perhaps Earth-like planet, it's going to be a long time. So we need to really learn how to take care of our planet and take care of each other. And I think the more people that have the opportunity to see that view and to realize that we're all from planet Earth and that Although we have differences, cultural differences and so forth, religious differences, we are more alike than we are different. And it, the more people get to have that experience, uh, the better off we're going to be. And, and, and quite honestly, I, I personally, and I'm, I'm sure many of my, my friends, maybe not all, but are amazed at how quickly this transition has occurred. And, um, I, I just had the opportunity to go to Saudi Arabia in October for the State Department and just see that the Axiom 2 crew had just returned, which had, um, uh, I can never pronounce the Saudi's name um, uh, very well, but to see the pride that they feel and having um, their two Saudi uh, astronauts in addition to Sultan who flew, you know, on the shuttle way back in 1985, but to see the pride they felt about um, the, their female astronaut flying. And now um, I was in Turkey and they have now, tomorrow, the uh, Axiom 3 crew is launching with the first Turkish astronaut. And to see the pride all these countries feel to have their own astronaut um, is amazing. And when I go speak to other countries now, you know, it used to be really hard to say, it's so great being an astronaut. Um, you know, unfortunately, your country doesn't have a space program. Now I can say, yes, maybe every, not every country can afford to have a space program, but most countries would be able to raise enough money to send uh, a crew on SpaceX or Virgin Galactic or Blue Origin and at least have someone from their country go into space and to see how much that means to other countries. I've had a chance to go to other countries with, you know, an astronaut from them and to see that the pride that is in Brazil and um, in, in, in just in all the different countries that have had like one astronaut go into space and how much it means to them. 
Um, I, I, I think it's really wonderful that we are, are now able to expand that. And, and I hope it's just going to be more and more and more uh, and that the price will come down so that it'll be affordable to, to more people. That's a, that's a wonderful way of looking at it. And I know there's still a distinction between some of those missions uh, that are happening to uh, ISS and, and that are, you know, very trained crews and things like that. And then, of course, there's just kind of a, a space tourism. And for, for some people, there's kind of this, how do we distinguish what, what an astronaut is versus someone going up on a paid mission just as a, as, as a tourist? What's your thought on on that? How do we kind of diffuse that? Uh, well, um, you know, uh, my, my daughter, who's in broadcast journalism and was going to interview me, and she goes, Mom, you know, I'm going to ask you this question. You know, what do you think about uh, uh, space tourists being called astronauts and stuff? And I said, well, you know, I, I don't have strong feelings about it. And, you know, some people do, some people don't, but, you know, I, to me, the term astronaut refers to someone for whom it's a career. And so what I finally said was my distinction is if you get paid to go into space, you're probably an astronaut. If you pay to go into space, you're something else, whatever you want to call it, explore or whatever, you know. <laughs> But I don't really get too hung up over, you know, nomenclature. But, you know, there's a difference between if you're a career astronaut and the years of training it takes, you know, uh, to do that. And even on the Axiom crews, Mike Lopez-Algria and Peggy Wetson so far have been the commanders that are former NASA astronauts that have both been commanders of space stations. So you know, those crews have somebody with them who is a, you know, a former career astronaut. Um, that, to me, that doesn't take anything away from people who, uh, you know, are adventurers and want to go into space and, and um, you know, call yourself whatever, whatever you want to call. But if I, the analogy I have is I go riding a police car uh, with a policeman to see what they do. That doesn't make me a policeman. <laughs> you know, I haven't gone through the training that they that they have, and you know, I certainly don't fill that function. And I think that's probably true of being an astronaut. But you know, I'm not going to get hung up on it. Although I I will say I was in Belgium uh, a, a few years ago, and there happened to, I was there to speak, and one of the Virgin Galactic um, uh, uh, astronauts was was there to speak, and in my talk I just referred to him as a space tourist. I didn't even think anything of it, and he took offense at that. <laughs> and I, I remember I said, "Well, but that's what you are." <laughs> Nonetheless, you know, it, like I said, it, it's really uh, it's really not worth arguing about. It's more like a you know kind of a, a, a fun discussion, and um, there's always. In my mind, there's always going to be professional astronauts, and there's going to be more and more people that have the opportunity to go to space, and and I'm I'm happy, and and I hope it eventually gets to where you don't have to have you know a lot of money to be able to go into space because when it becomes something that's available to almost everyone, much like commercial air flight is today, um, I think the world will be a better place for that. 
What a wonderful way of, of looking at it and, and helps, especially if decision makers in the world and around the world can see our planet from that perspective. Yeah. Well, and I think... And I thank you so, so much for joining us tonight on Social Flight Live. Your story is very, very inspiring. Again, for anyone who would like more information uh, uh, about it, the, the, the book, which is uh, so wonderful from Meredith Bagby, is The New Guys. Great book. And uh, I just want to say thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to, uh, to join us. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I, I highly recommend uh, Meredith's book because I actually learned a lot of things myself that I didn't know. <laughs> So uh, yeah, she she really did a superb job and uh, really enjoyed having the chance to be here. Thank you so much, Jeff. Great. Have a wonderful evening. You as well. Thanks. And to all of you, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to join us here on Social Flight Live. We'll be back next Tuesday, January 23rd with Michael Menzel of the James Webb Telescope, our last installment of space versus air back here on the Earth. And uh, it's really fascinating, a lot of stuff uh, that is worth learning about that amazing accomplishment of putting the James Webb Telescope into, uh, into space and, and what we've been getting back from it. And then we return back to uh, the terrestrial world of aviation on Tuesday, January 30th, Flight Safety Detectives. Greg Faith is here, and um, we are going to talk. There's a lot going on when it comes to aviation accidents and investigation. Uh, you do not want to miss that episode of Flight Safety Detectives here on the show on Tuesday, January 30th. Then we take a week off and we're back on Tuesday, February 13th with Kurt Robinson, CEO of Robinson Helicopter, the most iconic uh, uh, aircraft uh, helicopter manufacturer right now in terms of volume at least. And they are just everywhere and that, that the company is just soaring. So it's wonderful to hear from him. So I hope you'll join us for those shows. Until next time, I'm Jeff Simon for Social Flight. Blue skies.